Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the end of the two-day UN Climate Summit of World Leaders and get an assessment of what has been achieved as the US and the EU announce a global agreement to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030, along with world leaders agreeing to end and reverse deforestation. Joining us is Andrew Revkin, Director of the Initiative on Communication, Innovation and Impact at the Earth Institute of Columbia University, who has won most of the top awards in science journalism over a three-decade-long career, including 21 years at the New York Times. His books include The Burning Season, The Murder of Chico Mendez and the Fight for the Amazon Rainforest, Global Warming, Understanding the Forecast, and The Human Planet, Earth at the Dawn of the Anthropocene. And he blogs at revkin.bulletin.com, where his latest article is Big Oil in the Hot Seat and Everyone Wins. We'll discuss how tackling methane is the low-hanging fruit, although some of the biggest emitters, Russia, China and India, did not sign on in a race to stop the increasing levels of methane spewing from fracking, the melting permafrost in Siberia, wetlands, rice paddies and agriculture in particular from cattle. Then we'll look into how the agreement in Glasgow impacts the global north-south divide in terms of climate reparations and a pledge not to finance coal-fired electrical generating plants in the third world. Joining us is Basif Sen, a climate justice project director at the Institute for Policy Studies, and we'll discuss the impassioned speech by the Prime Minister of Barbados that reflected the injustice of poorer countries bearing the brunt of rising sea levels from pollution caused by the richest countries. Then finally, we'll speak with Robert Johnson, the Executive Director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, who was previously Chief Economist of the United States Senate Banking Committee and the United States Senate Budget Committee. He joins us to discuss the worsening standoff between Senators Manchin and Sinema and the progressives in the House and how a Democratic defeat in the governor's race in Virginia might be blamed on the progressives as the negotiations drag on further with the possibility that Biden may end up with no deal at all. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can... Help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Andrew Revkin, the Director of the Initiative on Communication, Innovation and Impact at the Earth Institute of Columbia University, who has won most of the top awards in science journalism over a three-decades-long career, including 21 years at the New York Times. His books include The Burning Season, The Murder of Chico Mendez and the Fight for the Amazon Rainforest, Global Warming, Understanding the Forecast, and The Human Planet, Death at the Dawn of the Anthropocene. And he blogs at revkin.bulletin.com, where his latest article is Big Oil in the Hot Seat and Everyone Wins. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Revkin. It's good to be back with you. Well, thanks, thanks for joining us again. And 
it looks as if in terms of the two-day summit of world leaders at the UN COP26 talks in uh, Glasgow, Scotland, that the takeaway is that Joe Biden and the EU announced that they're going to create a pact of over 100 countries signing on to a pledge for reducing methane by 30% by 2030. They also had a similar pledge in terms of deforestation, although I think there's a reasonably healthy skepticism about Brazil signing on, Indonesia and China in terms of their record. Let's begin with that since you wrote the book about Chico Mendes. Do you think yeah, that I, do you can trust Bolsonaro for what he's pledged? Well, the basic answer is no, um, in the sense that, but it's bigger than Bolsonaro. Uh, the, the forces that propel uh, deforestation in the Brazilian portion of the Amazon rainforest uh, have as much to do with corruption and um, the lack of governance, uh, even the possibility of governance, um, than even Bolsonaro. You know, that there was, I was there in 1989 writing my book about the murder of Chico Mendes in 1988. And that was a period of when people in the last two years were saying the Amazon was burning at a terrible, you know, record rate, they were forgetting that it was much higher than then. So, so things are better than they were, but, and they're going to get better. But the idea that some maneuver or some announcement by the government will be determinative is really, to me, my skeptic bar is high. One element that came out today that could help is a $1.7 billion commitment to the um, indigenous peoples living in tropical forests, not just in the Amazon. And they've already demonstrated when their presence on land uh, is a deterrent to deforestation. Uh, and that forest, if it's sort of sustained, nurtured, um, um, amplified, can help to change the overall dynamic. And in terms of the methane pledge of reducing methane emissions by 30% by the end of the this decade, the EU Commissioner Ursula von Leyen basically says we can't wait for 2050. And then she said that cutting methane is one of the most effective things we can do to reduce near-term global warming, calling it the lowest hanging fruit. So is that why they're going after it? Because I did an interview with people involved in the in this methane summit at yeah. COP26, and they thought that this was the most useful thing that would come out of it. Unfortunately, again, it's a race, is it not? Because the permafrost is melting in Russia and Siberia and also wetlands and rice production and, and yeah. of course, agriculture, such as cattle, are yeah. huge contributors. So what's your takeaway then, Andrew, on how much we're playing catch-up here with this effort and whether, uh -huh. indeed, it's because it's so identifiable? Well, it's... the. The other logic behind it, the push, is not just that it's low-hanging fruit, but that it gives you a quick bang for the buck. Uh, methane is a very transitory gas. You, it it um, degrades and goes away pretty quickly if you, after six or so years. But while it's in the atmosphere, it's got a really strong heat-trapping effect, more strong, much stronger, many times stronger than CO2, carbon dioxide. So if you can reduce the, the emissions of it, you can have a real potential, a real effect on climate in the short run. And CO2 is the long game. Uh, it builds in the atmosphere like unpaid credit card debt in your um, accounting. And and so that's a tougher go. 
to me, this, the logic of it, and this is the low-hanging fruit part, is that it's actually really easy to do. In 2009, uh, Cliff Krauss and I wrote a front-page story for the New York Times. I reported from New Mexico where BP, of all companies, you know, just a year later, they had the Gulf spill. But BP was demonstrating compelling potential to, to basically zero out emissions from oil and gas wells. They, I was there on site and they should, they, you know, they, their, their culture at BP at that time, the sort of the shadow of John Brown, who had run the company and was very concerned about climate, um, was that they took these emissions from their wells and basically went to virtually zero. And the thing about those doing that is then you're taking something that's leaking into the atmosphere as a greenhouse gas and keeping it in a pipeline that you can sell. So the logic's always been there. And companies, there's a lot of um, quick wins to do there. Uh, I think the Times or some other newspaper just did a major heave on Russian emissions, which are enormous. Even back in 2009, there was uh, people I talked to about U.S. emissions in Canada were Actually, they said there was one piping station, pumping station, compression station somewhere in the Russian outback that had as much leakage as all of Canada. So, so that says something terrible. But at the same time, it says, well, if they got serious, too, then you could actually have big impact pretty quickly. So that's it does. It makes sense. Agriculture is a lot harder. You know, cows, the billion, how many billions of cattle there are, um, ruminants, um, there's ways to capture their methane. There's ways to give them different feedstock that reduces their the gas, their flatulence. I mean, their their burping. And um, but that's a longer go too. And of course, you have all the, as you said, uh, rice agriculture uh, aspects of deforestation and some of the tropics peatlands is going to be hard to stanch too. And again, I'm speaking with Andrew Repkin, who's the director of the Initiative on Communication, Innovation and Impact at the Earth Institute of Columbia University, who has won most of the top awards in science journalism over a three decades long career, including 21 years at the New York Times. His books include The Burning Season, The Murder of Chico Mendez and the Fight for the Amazon Rainforest, Global Warming, Understanding the Forecast and the Human Planet, Earth at the Dawn of the Anthropocene. And he blogs at revkin.bulletin.com, where his latest article is Big Oil in the Hot Seat and Everyone Wins. Mm. Now, the, unfortunately, the a major emitters of methane, and you've just mentioned Russia, where in Siberia, as you say, that one station that contributes more or leaks more methane into the atmosphere than all of the infrastructure in Canada. And, of course, there's the need to do a complete inventory on gas in this country from the oil wells and the fracking wells all the way through the storage infrastructure, the pipelines, all the way into the house where I think every, almost every householder at one point or other has had the gas company visit because of the smell of a leak. So it's ubiquitous in terms of the infrastructure and the, the leakage. But these major emitters, particularly Russia, China and India, they're not a part of this pledge. So how do you get them on board, given uh, what a danger to the planet Siberia is, for example? Well, India is worth a separate conversation almost. Um, I've spent a little bit of time there, but I've talked to many experts in India's uh, energy challenges, and they they are correct, as they were in 2015 at the Paris Agreement negotiations, in saying that if there's any carbon space left in this shrinking budget, that's one of the metrics people talk about, they own it, and they own it because... India has this tiny carbon footprint so far compared to the U.S. and Europe and the other established powers. And 
essentially they have the right to develop and that their energy needs right now, uh, ethically, morally, are in the foreground for them. And uh, I tend to agree with them. You know, the last six years of the times I was an opinion writer, and my opinion is that uh, we we can't do what um, John Kerry, the climate envoy, was pushing uh, both in Paris in his role then and recently he's been pushing develop, developing countries to not take our path. And it's very easy to say, but it's very hard to see that happen on the ground unless, and, and this I've seen in the headlines out of Glasgow too, unless we're willing to pay for it, and meaning the advanced countries. And while the um, G20 uh, leaders, Biden was gone by then, uh, were throwing coins over their shoulder in the Trevi Fountain after the G20 meeting. This is going to take a lot more than uh, the coinage that they tossed in that fountain for luck. Um, the, there's still not clarity on a key component of the Glasgow talks, which is uh, what are the developed countries going to do financially for the up-and-comers who are, face so much vulnerability and have so much so little history of disrupting the climate system. Well, presumably in this next week, when the the sort of work is really done after the headliners of the world leaders have left after these last two days of the leader summit, apparently they get down to serious work for the next week or so. But turning to CO2, how are we doing in the sense that, again, talking about a low-hanging fruit, it seems like coal-fired plants are, in fact, a low-hanging fruit. They're stationary sources. They're very identifiable. For a while there, they were in massive trouble because of the availability of cheaper natural gas. That's turned around. In fact, the whole isn't there a major contradiction going on here, Andrew, in the sense that the Biden administration is so committed to dealing with global warming at the same time they're encouraging Russia and particularly Saudi Arabia to pump more oil. And apparently there is a personal dimension here that Biden hates MBS and MBS hates Biden or wants Biden to accept him. And he's sort of blackmailing the U.S. in effect by not pumping more oil, which they've always done, the Saudis. They're the swing producer. And every time we need the price of oil reduced at the pump, usually for political reasons, they oblige. But they're not doing it this time. Well, it's such a tangle. The, you know, the multidimensional aspect of this chess game is is dizzying. Um, Biden also closed down the Keystone Pipeline. At that hearing I wrote about on Bulletin.com uh, last week, um, the the Republicans didn't spend any time trying to rebut the Democratic charges that the oil companies had been dissembling. That that was a sideshow. The Republicans, every every statement they made was about rising U.S. oil prices, gas prices, and and this administration is trying to tamp down production here domestically. And now, not only that, administration officials are pressing OPEC uh, and, or Saudis to um, to pump it up. And that just think about that in the context of what Biden was trying to deliver at the, the meeting. Uh, and then he's got to think about 2022 and the 2024 votes. And, you know, there are vulnerable Democrats next year. And if the oil prices stay high, uh, inflation is the story, then uh, all this talk of global warming and, and that small sliver of the population, the voting voting population that's tuned in on climate climate crisis, you know, that climate crisis is like a perennial thing. And these things, these these near term political surges um, tend to dominate. So I wouldn't want to be a speechwriter in this White House or a strategist uh, 
trying to navigate all of that with some coherent outputs. Well, it's not inconceivable that, well, you could tell from that hearing uh, the other day with the oil company executives, which you wrote about it at uh, your blog, Big Oil in the Hot Seat and Everyone Wins. I found it actually painful to watch because of the theatrics and the antics of the Republicans, largely focusing, as you say, on the Keystone Pipeline cancellation and the price of gas. They're doing that because it's a popular, <laughs> it's a winner with the with the electorate. And it would seem that in many ways, given Trump's close relationship with MBS, uh, without getting conspiratorial, it seems like um, the longer the price of gas goes up, the more it hurts Biden. But at yeah. that hearing, the one thing that it was sort of billed as a, a sort of another take on on the big tobacco hearing where the big tobacco executives were embarrassed and denied nicotine was addictive. There was some hope that this would be a similar situation, but the oil company executives seemed to have dodged that bullet. The one thing that I don't understand why nobody followed up on, Andrew, is that cigarettes now are so heavily taxed, they're incredibly expensive. It's a sin tax. Why can't we do that with gasoline? Is it just politically impossible? Because if you want to transition away from gasoline to alternative fuels, the best way to do it is to put a tax on at the pump and use that money to invest in alternative energy. Well, you know, this is where... Again, strategies get kind of tangled here. There were Republicans this past summer who uh, were backing a, a road fee, uh, not its own miles driven, so that incorporates you know electric vehicles, et cetera, as a way around the uh, longstanding um, lag of our federal gas tax, which was pegged not pegged to inflation, you know, so it's like minuscule. And, but in a way, that forces Biden anything that would look. But what, what what happened was Biden was against this. Because it would be a um, essentially a tax on the working class and the poor, you know, who have a higher proportion of their income goes toward filling their tank than wealthier people. So it flipped it to put Biden against a tax like that. Uh, and actually, Obama talked about this years ago too, when he was in office. His last year in office, he said, you know, raising fuel prices puts a burden on the middle class and, and the lower working class, and that's uh, a non-starter. So, you know, it's not always a simple matter even there. Well, obviously, it's not an easy matter for, for politicians to raise taxes of any kind. But And now we have this political standoff between Manchin and Sinema and the progressive Democrats in the House. And Biden is twisting yeah. in the wind as his poll numbers plummet. And a lot of it's to do with the fact that Manchin and Sinema won't raise revenues. So they have all these gimmicks. And I'm not sure that... All of this, this $550 billion for alternative energy is actually going to materialize. I mean, it's hard to know. I, I'm with you on this. I feel so torn. Um, I wish the Democratic Party had a more constructive way of working with itself at times like these. But I understand, you know, where the passions are. And I understand my progress. You know, I, I kind of I have a progressive heart, but a practical uh, brain. And uh, so I'm much more... Um, attuned to compromise and the like um, than some of my friends who uh, really push this forward. And I I would like to see half a loaf, half, a half a loaf that's much bigger than any loaf that's ever been baked in terms of climate policy. If that gets passed, uh, that would be great. And then keep pushing forward. It, it, to me, it kind of reminds me of the Paris Agreement process. That means the climate treaty process. Remember, I, I've been writing about climate since 1988, since before the first treaty, before the Earth Summit and 
before the IPCC. And there, there was this flip, actually, Copenhagen, so 10 years ago, 12 years ago, from the expectation of that the, that treaty process resulting in a um, kind of a sign-on-the-bottom-line contract. All the countries of the world will reduce CO2 by X million tons or pay a price. And that, that went away because you can't get 200 countries to the table to sign anything unless it's flexible. And Paris shifted that toward a what will always be seen as and always will be essentially insufficient. But it is the process that can work in a way like a compromise on Congress. If you get directionality, if you get a few key items going, if you get them going in public, so you have de demonstrable success, if people start seeing that virtually every gas station also has an electric um, hookup. I noticed, I think it was BP who said at that hearing that uh, they have 7,000 electric hookups now at their gas stations. They're going to have 70,000 in, I can't remember how many years, a few years. And, you know, if, as people start to normalize that we're on a trajectory away from fossil fuels toward clean energy, then I think we can start to surprise ourselves on the upside instead of on the downside, like we seem to be, um, be doing too much these days. Well, Andrew Remkin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. It's always happy. Happy back anytime. Well, thank you. And again, I me speak with Andrew Revkin, the Director of the Initiative on Communication, Innovation and Impact at the Earth Institute of Columbia University, who has won most of the top awards in science journalism over a three-decade-long career, including 21 years at the New York Times. His books include The Burning Season, The Murder of Chico Mendez and The Fight for the Amazon Rainforest, Global Warming, Understanding the Forecast, and The Human Planet, Earth at the Dawn of the Anthropocene. And he blogs at revkin.bulletin.com where his latest article is Big Oil in the Hot Seat and Everyone Wins. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing the impassioned speech by the Prime Minister of Barbados at the UN Climate Summit that reflected the injustice of poorer countries bearing the brunt of rising sea levels from pollution caused by the richest countries. God reached his hand down from the sky. He flooded the land and he set it afire. He said, fear me again, no, I'm your father, remember that no one can breathe underwater. So bend your knees and bow your heads, save your babies, here's your future. Yeah, here's your future! Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Basef Sen, who is the Climate Justice Project Director at the Institute for Policy Studies. Previously, he worked for about 11 years as a strategic corporate campaign researcher at the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, and also had experience as a campaigner against the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Welcome to Background Briefing, Basef Sen. Thank you for having me on your show again. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Basev. And there was a very emotional speech made by the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Amor Motley. And it certainly got the attention of the world leaders. And of course, the two-day world leaders summit has ended. And now for the next week or so, they'll get down to details there. Biden took a huge delegation with him. So most of his cabinet, as a matter of fact. So they're still continuing their work uh, now that the leaders have all left. But this particular speech was really, it almost reminded me of Greta Thunberg and her efforts to wake up the world leaders 
She's talked about what's happening now, particularly with an island nation like hers in the Caribbean. Of course, in the Pacific, it's even worse. Uh, she's saying this is immoral, this is unjust. We are so blinded and hardened that we can no longer appreciate the cries of humanity. If our existence is to mean anything, then we must act in the interest of all our people who are dependent upon us. And if we don't, we will allow the path of greed and selfishness to sow the seeds of our common destruction. Do you think that resonated, Basev? Because obviously the, there is this divide, uh, it's so clear, between the rich and the poor nations and the vulnerable ones who are being hurt because the powerful ones are the ones that are emitting all of the pollutants. No, that's absolutely right. And I feel like what Prime Minister Mia Motley's speech uh, represented was growing global rage. Um, this is not the first time, certainly, that um, uh, sentiments such as hers have been expressed at the Global Climate Talks. Uh, they have uh, very famously been brought up by a Filipino negotiator after um, uh, Typhoon Haiyan that was eight years ago, um, and also by various delegates from the Pacific, from Africa, from the Caribbean, from various other uh, global South countries. Now, but I feel like what her speech represented was both kind of a crystallization of this ang this intense anger. It's uh, going to come out more and more as climate impacts become more dire throughout the global south. And also the other thing which was an escalation in a way was uh, that world media took notice and they took notice more than they would have a few years ago. And what do I attribute that to? I attribute that to a shift in broader public consciousness on these issues. Just the fact that there is, for example, a growing youth-led global climate justice movement that that alone has shifted the conversation in society as a whole. And the media really is a microcosm of larger society. Uh, and so even though it sometimes views itself as being apart from the rest of society, observing it rather than a part of it, the truth is that trends in societal values do shift the way media perceives things. And I feel like we are seeing that with the media coverage of uh, uh, the Prime Minister of Barbados' speech. Um, and speaking of speeches by world leaders, there's one more speech I would like listeners to, uh, listeners of this show to uh, seek out and listen to, and that's uh, the speech by President Arce of Bolivia, who made it very clear that some of the gimmicky solutions being pursued by uh, the wealthy countries and by corporations, and sometimes it's hard to separate one from the other because of uh, uh, 
the degree of corporate control and influence over the policies and the politics of wealthy countries. So President Arce very clearly named them as gimmicks and stated that we cannot run away from the fact that we have to have deep systemic change in global political and economic systems. We cannot just tinker around the edges. We cannot just pretend that business as usual can continue with a few you know, tweaks to market incentives to address this dire emergency that we're in. And that's, in a way, it should be obvious because um, it's the failings of the uh, profit at all costs market fundamentalist ideology that has led us into the climate crisis in the first place, where we know what's causing the problem, but we cannot stop because there's money to be made in continuing with exactly the thing that's going to come back and bite us in the long run. Because uh, our current market capitalist global economic order incentivizes short-term profit over everything else. Well, among the the few takeaways, of obviously the, the proposal by Biden and the EU to cut methane emissions by 30% by the end of the decade and then the also the pledges to reverse deforestation with China and Indonesia and and Brazil under Bolsonaro signed on to, but there's some skepticism, particularly about Bolsonaro's credibility in that regard. The other thing that I think relates relates to the north-south divide between the richer and the poorer nations is the pledge not to finance any more coal plants in the developing world. Well, what's the alternative? I mean, I, obviously, coal plants are a disaster for the environment, but what are the alternative technologies available to these countries? Well, today, the costs of renewables and particularly solar energy have fallen to the point that they are more than cost competitive with coal. They are they're cheaper than coal. They are cost competitive with gas right now. And uh, the two other advantages of solar energy, particularly in poor countries in the global south, are number one, that they can be distributed. So you can have a generation that's not centralized and much closer to the point of use, uh, which takes out the need for massive capital investment in transmission lines. So uh, the overall package of distributed renewable energy with um, localized storage and localized microgrids is much cheaper than uh, centralized coal power plants with uh, with miles and miles of high voltage transmission lines so so there are there are just sound economic reasons for uh, investment in distributed renewable energy for uh, poor countries Sure, but uh, Basav, is that happening though? Are the rich companies 
helping out. If they're, if they're no longer financing coal plants, are they going to finance the alternatives? Uh, but that, I guess that's what I'm getting at, is that it shouldn't be coal plants or nothing. What it should be is that they transfer their funding for energy in the global south from fossil fuels such as coal or even gas to renewables, which, which uh, for the most you know, distributed impact possible, that would be solar, uh, but it could also be wind energy, geothermal energy, etc. Uh, and the other benefit of that is this concept called leapfrogging, uh, particularly in some of the least, um, you know, the lowest income countries, large sections of the population today are off grid. Uh, there are, especially in rural regions, large populations who have no access to electricity whatsoever. Uh, so there isn't already an asset base of um, fossil fuel power generation and its associated distribution system uh, that would need to be given up to make the transition to renewables. Literally, areas could transition from no electricity to renewable electricity, uh, completely bypassing the fossil fuel stage all of which makes the case for um, financing renewables rather than fossil fuels in the global south very compelling. So just in the last couple of minutes, uh, Vasev, obviously reparations are a pretty hard sell, but when you think about it, it's the rich countries that have created all the pollution and the poor countries are the ones that are suffering most of the impact from global warming, particularly the Pacific Islands that are going out, literally being submerged by the ocean. So where does it stand in terms of the debate on reparations? So the idea of climate reparations is widely accepted in large sections of global civil society. Where it hasn't made a dent, obviously, is in the power structure in wealthy countries. And in a way that's not surprising because of the degree of uh, uh, corporate domination uh, and particularly uh, domination by large transnational corporations in the political systems of wealthy countries. Uh, but the optimist in me has reason to think that, again, this is an instance where a growing shift in public consciousness is going to ultimately shift the politics in wealthy countries in the right direction. I mean, just case in point, um, who would have thought 10 years ago or even six years ago that a prominent candidate uh, in a U.S. presidential election would actually, without necessarily naming it as climate reparations, uh, make a case for effectively climate reparations. And I'm, I'm speaking about the Bernie Sanders campaign's uh, climate plan, the international component of which included 200 billion commitment to the Green Climate Fund, which is about 20 times larger than what the Biden administration is 
putting in now, which again, remember, is something like a doubling of what the Obama administration had put in. And, and the fact that this wasn't a fringe candidate, he was actually a close contender for the nomination of one of the two major parties in not just any wealthy country, but uh, one of the wealthiest and most powerful countries in the world. Um, that to me shows that, that this public consciousness can in fact shift to the point where the combination of demands from the global South uh, and domestic demands from movements in solidarity with the global South in the wealthy countries uh, would combine to put pressure on wealthy country governments to begin uh, paying what's effectively climate reparations to the global South. Well, Basil Sen, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on your show, Ian. Oh, it's a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Basav Sen, the Climate Justice Project Director at the Institute for Policy Studies. Previously, he worked for about 11 years as a strategic corporate campaign researcher at the United Food and Commercial Workers Union and also had experience as a campaigner against the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into whether or not a Democratic defeat in the governor's race in Virginia might be blamed on House progressives as the negotiations drag on further with the possibility that Biden may end up with no deal at all. This disguise the leaders, you know I for them. Them vomiting everywhere, who them reach America. Them call the place to you, United Nations. Yeah, oh, another animal talk. Within United, inside United Nations. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Johnson, the Executive Director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, who was previously the Chief Economist of the United States Senate Banking Committee and the United States Senate Budget Committee. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Johnson. Pleasure to be here once again. Thanks for joining us, uh, Rob. And what do you make of the grenade that Mansion threw into the deliberations going on between the House Democrats and the Senate Democrats to pass these two bills. One's already passed, obviously, in the Senate, the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill. And basically, Manchin said, uh, you know, he first of all, he attacked the House Democrats and then tells them to stop playing games. And as long as they hold up the bipartisan bill, he's not interested in cooperating on the infrastructure bill, which has already been whittled down because he objected to the $3.5 trillion. It's now around $1.75 trillion. So he's exercising an extraordinary amount of leverage. Do you think at the end of the day he wants actually wants this infrastructure bill passed? Well, it's hard to know whether he wants it passed. What he does have is a credible threat in the sense that he has already threatened that he could leave the Democratic Party, become something like an independent, and then control of the Senate would shift from Democrats to Republican, from Schumer to Mitch McConnell. The Budget Committee would no longer be run by Bernie Sanders. And so the progressive wing is credibly threatened. And 
then he, what I would say, has a more conservative agenda. There is a very big role for money in politics. There are a lot of people who got very used to not paying the bills for broad-based things related to education, health, infrastructure, and uh, are now fearful of that. Manchin is also telling people, my understanding is that in the House, they have to come up with their revenue plan, not just a spending plan, uh, in order for him to even consider it. He doesn't know who's going to be impacted. There are a lot of very well-heeled donors in both parties who may be quite grateful to him and his financial power would increase. But I do think the threat now that the House won't have something and this will trickle on into December and there'll be threats of uh, government shutdown and so forth, it, it's, it's very difficult to see. But now, you know, it'll be interesting to see how President Biden tries to come in and influence this as the leader of the party. Uh, and there's also Senator Christian Sinema, Democrat from Arizona. I saw a lot of reports this morning that Democrats want to primary her because she is a, a, a substantial blockage on any kind of raising revenue or rollback of the Trump tax cuts for the very most wealthy. Well, it's not as if Biden hasn't already met with uh, both Cinema and Manchin on a number of occasions. And apparently, at least you can deal with Manchin. He's up front, to, yep. at least to some extent. But with her, you just don't know because she's so quixotic and so vain and about, you know, it's almost like a Marie Antoinette character. And she just loves the attention and won't speak to the press. So there's a lot of things about her that must be incredibly exasperating. But when you talk about revenues... She's the one that's blocking revenues, and, and by the way, so is Manchin. He, he's against improving the IRS's ability to, to collect more data from through the banks, etc. He's quite proud that he killed that one. So they're a little disingenuous, aren't they, if they, if they, want, they want to uh, pound away on revenues. And I'm sure a lot of the pay-fors uh, are gimmicks, which is the criticism that Manchin leveled at his press conference yesterday, but yeah. they're looking for little gimmicks simply because they can't do the real stuff, which is to overturn the Trump tax cuts, increase taxes on the super rich and on corporations. Right. In, in essence, they're saying, how are you going to pay for it? And you can't pay for it because we'll stop attempts to raise revenue. So therefore, you can't do it. And yet I think there's a great deal of pressure on the Democratic leadership going into the midterm elections next year to show the public some substantial progress. And uh, so it's a, it, having two Democrats being the stopping point is uh, what you might call threatening the entire party, unless they think they will both be welcome on the other side if they change affiliations. Uh, I think they're they're at risk. And I think each of them is probably a great deal of risk of being primaried by very, very frustrated coalitions uh, next time that they're up, which I believe Cinema's up this coming year, is my No, she's up, she's up in 2024. Oh, 24. Okay, sorry. Right. But she's obviously going to have a huge war chest because the, the donors, Big Farmer yeah. and others, would be very grateful for what she's done. So, Manchin, though, any Democrat 
who ran against Manchin would never get elected in the state of West Virginia. So I'm not sure what kind of a threat that What kind of be. leverage, yeah. Exactly. And again, I'm speaking with uh, Robert Johnson, Executive Director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, who was previously Chief Economist of the United States Senate Banking Committee and the United States Senate Budget Committee. So is there a psychological component here, the fact that Manchin doesn't like being kind of up against the squad since the head of the Progressive Caucus in the House, Jayapal, is a member of the squad? Is there any kind of sort of old-fashioned chauvinism, or since you worked in the Senate, senators don't like <laughs> having to answer to the, to the House, right? That's characteristic. I mean, my days are long past. I left the Senate in 1989, but it used to be that Senate staff often worked with House members, and senators kept their distance as though they were above the fray. But uh, obviously people you know, like the House Speaker or whatever, and, and leadership, it was a different thing. But in working out the guts and glue of various things. You mentioned the uh, Progressive Caucus chairman, Jayapal and the squad group. They are clearly at odds. In, in, but I guess in the theater of this, Manchin may welcome that. He may welcome being able to stop them and frustrate them on behalf of his donors and constituents. I guess... The question is, what can that be? Right. Well, they don't want to cave, though, do they, the House progressives, and just go ahead and pass the bipartisan bill, which is what both mm-hmm. Manchin and Sinema helped yeah. push through, and it's a very Republican bill, weighted, right. weighted for the red states against the blue states, and especially a lot of deferred maintenance that should have been done over the years in terms of infrastructure very little in terms of alternative energy and anything about investing in the future. That's why right. you need the second package, the infrastructure package. That's right. Um, so do you think they, at the end of the day they'll give in and pass the the bipartisan bill and hope that both Manchin and Cinema will actually are sincere about wanting to do the infrastructure bill? There's a lot of suspicion that at the end of the day Manchin just wants the bipartisan bill passed and the same with Cinema. Yeah, that they would do that and then walk away and, and which you might call maintain their opposition to anything that's got which might more more social concern associated with it. So what happens then if McAuliffe loses in Virginia? Will that give Manchin side ammunition to say, see, the man he lost because you know, he's too liberal and we got attacked back to the right. Well, I saw, I've saw. i seen some comments like that. I remember reading an article, Joe Lieberman, a week or so ago, saying that the Democrats have run too fast, too far to the left, and they have to come back with a centrist perspective. And so uh, this might be a statement to that effect. That, And if Terry McAuliffe, who's a well-known ally of the Clinton family, uh, and not considered a particularly left-wing guy, but if, but he's not considered kind of hard right within the Democratic Party either. And if he loses to a Trumpian, I think it's going to scare people. And whether they will go further left, go for more turnout, or, or create somebody that's Trumpian-like or further right in the Democratic Party is, is not yet determined. But it, it's, a, it's a very anxious time. 
I think a lot of people who were quite unhappy with Donald Trump are very disappointed in how narrow the margin, particularly in the Senate, turned out to be. And this 50-50 plus the vice president does give somebody like Joe Manchin or Senator Sinema a great deal of leverage. But what it seems to be is that, is that the whole thing's hanging by a thread. And if you're Joe Biden abroad, and it, I mean, I was very struck by the remark that Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, said to Vice President Harris, almost sort of plaintively saying, what's happening to America? I mean, people abroad are, and our traditional allies are alarmed at this sort of crazy, inchoate right-wing lunacy that's taken over the Republican Party and the, and the political discourse in this country and this massive voter suppression underway that could end up killing American democracy and, and is having a, a one-party Republican state with the Trump Republican Party, as crazy as that is, running the country. So that's one concern that Biden must be getting an earful of. But as far as I can tell, it's only the fact that Joe Manchin has you know, a personal relationship with Biden and he doesn't want to blow up the entire Democratic agenda that's stopping him from... <laughs> from blowing up the entire Democratic agenda. I mean, are we, are we hanging by that kind of a thread? Yeah, if I was in Biden's shoes, I'd be talking to Manchin now. What is it that you need to join us and do this larger bill? Is there something particular to your state or your agenda that we could add that would, you know, how would I say, take care of his constituents or address something without being to the detriment of climate change or other things. But is there something he wants? And uh, I've seen presidents, you know, sometimes like with Lyndon Johnson, he'd go offer people positions in the cabinet, stuff like that. Sometimes it's a legislative thing, but it may be, I mean, Joe Biden's a savvy guy in the sense he's very experienced in this inner politics. He may have already tried to bring that to the head and didn't find any place with Manchin that would allow for this to pass. Yeah, I'm sure in, the, in these endless discussions that they've had over the weeks, he's offered all kinds of sweeteners. So, but it leads me, though, to this mechanism that seems to exist, is that whenever the Democrats get the trifecta, their own side tends to sabotage them and limit their horizons. It happened to uh, Bill Clinton in 92, in that brief period between 92 and 94, when he had, the Democrats controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House, he'd got very little done. He barely passed his budget by one vote. His own side revolted against him, and the same happened with, to some extent with Obama in 2009. He had the trifecta and was only managed to get a very limited stimulus package through an inadequate one, and of course all of his efforts went for the Affordable Care Act, and that, again, barely passed. So there's a mechanism there. Is that to say that this is how America works, is that the kind of establishment, for the want of a better description, they already have the Republican Party on their side, and if they can get a couple of Democrats to join them to stymie the agenda of progressives then that's what's been going on, or is that mm -hmm. too conspiratorial? Mm -hmm. No, I think the role of money in politics, whether 
for you know public relations or campaign contributions or what have you is very very important and uh, so concentrated powerful interests can play a very big role in which you might call turning someone away from their voters, meaning their constituents, or persuading their voters that what the powerful interest wants is the right thing for the people. There, there are all kinds of dimensions to it. And it's not a Republican thing or a Democratic thing. I think that's why a lot of the people, say in the Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren element of the party, feel quite frustrated because which might say the money the lobbyists can always pour in and refract people from doing simply what would be good for the country. And right, you know, at times people will differ about what's good for the country, but when they start doing what's good for the donors, irrespective of the country, then our system is suffering from its, uh, what you call mal designs. And when you mentioned Lieberman earlier, Senator Lieberman, who was Al Gore's choice for vice president, he's kind of the poster boy, isn't he, for that kind of, I don't know, I don't know how much he's in the, in the control of lobbyists, but he sure seems more comfortable with the Republicans. He was, his best friend was McCain and, and uh, Lindsey Graham. And the same with Cinema. She, you know, she actually sits on the Republican side of the Senate. And one of her closest friends is the congressman from from Arizona, Andy Biggs, who was involved with the with the rally in, on January the 6th, and he's being looked at by the House Select Committee as a possible traitor, in effect, who helped the insurgents storm the Capitol. Yes. So, very troubling. It'll be interesting to see if Cinema is, quote, afraid of donors or is interested in switching parties herself. A lot of people have speculated that that might be her strategy would be uh, to shift across. But my sense is since she holds the seat as a Democrat, she'd want to continue to be that nominee and inspire the Republicans to nominate a weak challenger or to just cross over and support her regardless of who the challenger is. Right. And she, but she has the option of running as an independent, too. Mm-hmm. Well... It's extraordinary that we're in a situation where you've got 90, what, 96% of the Democrats all on board and this tiny percentage that's sabotaging the whole thing. It's just, it's got to be heartbreaking for Biden and it's frustrating for progressives. And uh, I don't know how longer they can hold their powder, right? Not, yeah, I uh, think the tension here is one of having the situation break down and looking like they can't lead going into the midterm elections versus having the system break down, shining a flashlight on the people that break it down and see if they can inspire people to shift more towards their coalition so that after the midterm elections, bigger, larger, more ambitious, progressive things can be done. Uh, I don't know which uh, direction they'll go, I'm sure they don't want to see everything break down into a stalemate now running into the election. Though some people say if you play tough in the early rounds, people will respect you and they'll come around to your side. People who stay home from the progressive side because they're disillusioned might come back to the polls. I don't I don't have the numbers on that calculus, but I, I think that's where they are. I think they're at that fork in the road. Well, Robert Johnson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, as always. 
And again, I've been speaking with Robert Johnson, the Executive Director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, who was previously the Chief Economist of the United States Senate Banking Committee and the United States Senate Budget Committee. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.